Lower back pain is a common presentation in pre-hospital care, and it's estimated that between 60 and 80% of the population have had lower back pain at some time in their life. Approximately 5 to 10% of these will have a degree of chronic back pain lasting for long periods, and as a result, ambulance clinicians will see both patients with acute pain, but also with many exacerbations of their chronic condition. The majority of lower back pain presentations are not serious, do not require imaging, and can be managed safely in the community. However, a small proportion can present with significant pathology and require emergent investigation, referral, and management. Failing to recognise these significant presentations can have serious consequences for both the patient and clinician, and this can be a highly litigious area if assessment is not performed accurately and documented thoroughly. This month, we're looking at the assessment of lower back pain, how to spot red flags, the potential differential diagnoses, and how to discharge and safety net these patients that can be managed safely in the community. So let's get started. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name is Josh. And my name's Simon. And today, Simon, we're going to be talking about uh, atraumatic lower back pain, which, as you've said, is a really common symptom. Uh, somewhere between 60 and 80% of the population will have had it or will have it at some point in their lifetimes. I know I have, and I'm sure uh, many of our listeners working for the health service will be able to relate. It's, it is an incredibly common presentation with quite a wide range of pathologies that can be involved so it's something that we're really likely to see and it's something that we really need to be comfortable and confident in managing and assessing so today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going into our history taking also we're going to talk about uh, what questions we need to be asking what uh, we need to be really digging it down into to find some clues to sort of elucidate what might be causing this lower back pain for our patients We'll talk about the different pathologies that are involved and what we can find in our history and examination that might lead us to, to think that, that they might be involved with causing this lower back pain. We'll talk about our management options, whether that's take, taking people in for further tests and what we'll talk about what further tests they're going to need. If it's appropriate for us to discharge, we'll talk a little bit about management plans and analgesic plans. Uh, available to us as well as the all-important ongoing care advice that we're going to be giving to these patients. So there's quite a lot for us to get through and hopefully it's all going to be really useful and relevant uh, to any pre-hospital student clinicians or new clinicians that are listening to this. So let's get started. So I think you're going to start us off with the ever-popular anatomy and physiology. Yeah, that topic that's really good to discuss over a podcast. Um... And that's the reason I gave it to you. Thanks for that. So um, anatomy and physiology is really important, like in all areas of paramedic practice. So we need a really good understanding of, of not just the spine, but the relevant systems that might uh, be implemented in our presentation of lower back pain. So when we're talking about lower back pain, we're mainly talking about the lumbar and sacral regions of the spine. So as we know, the spine's divided into five areas. Uh, which is cervical, thoracic, lumbar, sacral, and coccyx. So we're really, for this presentation, only interested in stuff that is lumbar or lower. Anything thor thoracic or cervical, we're going to class as upper back pain, which 
has a completely different set or, or can have a completely different set of differentials and, and is something for, for another day. Looking at the spine, the spine itself is made of uh, bone, uh, the vertebral column. We've included some videos of the spinal cord in the article. The spinal cord itself travels from the brain down to approximately the level of the L1, L2 region. And then at this point, known as the conus medullaris, it starts to split off into a structure that looks like a horse's tail due to all the nerves coming off in different directions. This is commonly known as the corda equina. And it's a really important structure and we should know a lot about it because it relates directly to some of the pathologies that we'll be talking about later, specifically corda equina syndrome. At the same level is the lumbrosacral plexuses and off this is nerves such as the sciatic nerve, which again is a common presentation along with back pain. All of this is stuff that we should have a good working knowledge of and something you should be able to see in the video. Then we need to have a good knowledge of abdominal physiology, including the cardiovascular structures that come through the abdomen, such as the descending aorta and the abdominal aorta, as these could present as back pain as the primary symptom. We also need to consider the bases of the lungs, where you may get pneumonia, and the musculature around the back and the renal system, all of which can cause lower back pain as a presentation. So it's not practical to go into a comprehensive overview of anatomy and physiology in a podcast, but I would urge the listeners, just go away, have a look at um, anatomy text you're interested in. YouTube's full of videos. We've embedded some of them in our article, but um, I think, yeah, go away and, and have a look around the subject uh, just to refresh yourself on, on those structures that might be involved with back pain. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's really important to have a good understanding of the AMP in this area when it comes to applying that and understanding the pathologies that we're going to talk later on in the podcast. It's a very common presentation. In the main, most of these will be non-specific and not serious and, and often will self-resolve, only requiring a little bit of perhaps analgesia and, and lifestyle advice from ourselves as the practitioner. But there are certainly a number of pathologies that are potentially life-threatening that we need to pick up. Lower back pain is typically more prevalent in those who work in jobs that involve manual labour, such as lifting, bending, straining. So definitely all of us in the ambulance service and will typically affect those with a high BMI or in a low socioeconomic class. And patients who are known to have mental health problems will often have worse recovery rates. And that's probably related to how well they will engage and perform with the physio that is required to get over long-term uh, musculoskeletal injuries and the like. You, you'll hear a lot of people, Josh, talk about red flags of back pain, but actually you've, you've hit on a really good point there that um, there's also some stuff that some people refer to as yellow flags, and these are the mental health aspects or aspects of someone's other parts of their health and um, social history that might inhibit them from recovering from back pain and mental health is a really predictive factor of that if you don't engage with services it's been shown that a lot of chronic pain actually has a major psychological component to it so how we engage with our recovery process is really important on how long chronic pain can affect us for so let's move forward on to history taking as our first section because this is a really really important thing that we need to get right and we need to be asking in the correct level of detail because there's lots of little nuggets of information that we can garner at the history that can wildly change what our impression of this back pain is likely to be 
So the first thing that we need to be doing for these patients, if they're presenting to us with with lower back pain, is asking about that pain. And we'll probably do this through following the the standard old carts or Socrates or, or whatever mnemonic people find useful, but really asking detailed questions about the pain that this patient's experiencing. So Simon, what can we be asking about the site or, or, or the location of this pain? So first of all, we need to establish the exact location of the pain. So as I mentioned to earlier, is it actually lower back pain? We need to be really cautious of thoracic or higher level pain. So anything that arises from the neck or the thoracic spine areas or the destructors from the chest we should be a red flag. And it's outside the scope of this to discuss. But make sure that the patient actually is talking about lower back pain for starters. Why is that? Why is Because it's always a red flag, isn't it? Thoracic back pain. But why particularly thoracic pain because, is that given as a red flag? Because the thoracic um, level is much more likely to have more problems. So we've got things like myocardial infarction presenting as back pain or radiating through to the back, aortic dissection, malignancy higher in the spinal cord. We've got things like PE. There's a lot more structures up higher that... Obviously, if we get a cord compression in a thoracic area, it's much likely to affect more of the body. So it's generally considered a red flag. Not saying that you can't have muscular thoracic level back pain, but obviously it just needs to be given, I think, a little bit more stringent investigation because there's a lot more stuff that you need to be be wary of. So once we've established that it actually is in the lower back, uh, so anything that's sort of the lumbar level or lower, we need to decide does it actually arise from the spine or the musculature that we would associate with musculoskeletal back pain or is it in fact coming from another structure such as genitourinary as in renal colic or pyelonephritis or does it come from the abdomen such as in a, a, a abdominal aortic aneurysm rupture uh, could it be from the lung so some basal pneumonias will present with the the upper end of lower back pain or maybe it's referred pain from the hip or sacroiliac joint, all of which can cause potential pain in the lower back or mistaken symptoms by the patient in the lower back. So it's always important to establish where we're actually talking about. And that's really difficult to elucidate, isn't it? That's really difficult to tell sometimes. We talk about referred pain quite a lot, but it's important to really remember in this case that uh, it, it could be an abdominal pathology that's causing this this discomfort so referred pains are thought to have developed from the same embryonic structures to where the true pain is is or pathology is originating so uh, abdominal pathologies will often refer to the back myocardial pathologies we talk about can often refer to the arms or the jaw and that's that's because they share the same nerve route so that's something that we definitely need to have in the back of our minds with this patient is you know could, could it be a completely different area that this problem is is occurring in uh, and we need to ensure that we don't anchor or we don't get sidetracked and focused purely on what's going on in the back. Yeah, definitely. Keep an, an open mind to a wide range of differentials. Narrow it down as you take your history and examination uh, and you, you'll be absolutely fine. So the next thing that we probably want to ask about is onset so this is this sounds quite obvious asking when did the pain start but it's not always acute going to be acute pain that will present to us we may be being called by patients who have ha have a chronic pain flare-up 
and and that might be the reason that we're there. So it's important to ask uh, when did the patient start and and, and take uh, a detailed history and a timeline of that pain if it is if it is chronic if it's acute we need to be asking questions about what the patient was doing at the time that it started was there a causative event was it caused by trauma something like a fall or, or were they hit in the back or were they just bending down at the time that the the, the pain caught them so uh, again i'm sh- i'm sure uh, a lot of us can imagine or have experienced that that bending down to pick something up off the floor and your back just starts to go into spasm was it an event like that did they just wake up with this pain, which in which in which case would be quite concerning if 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 uh, they were at rest or the pains come on spontaneously, or is there a as I've said a causative event or or an originating uh, movement in which case it might be one of our less concerning pathologies. And we shouldn't play chronic pain, especially with acute exacerbation. So never assume it's related to something that the patient has previously, or it's not a complication and a worsening of something that has someone's had previously. So we need to be really thorough with, with patients that have, have had things before, as you said. So moving on to character, then we want to ask them to describe the pain. So I don't know about you, Josh, but when I ask this question a lot to patients, especially patients that are in quite severe pain, one of the... It's really painful. Yeah, that's the most common reaction (laughs) I get as well. So I think we need to have a couple of ways of rewording this question. So I I normally say something like, um, I understand the pain's bad. Could you explain to me what it feels like and ask them to describe? If they really can't describe, you can give them options. The problem with giving them options is that I find a lot of patients will either jump to like the first one you say or you, you sort of put ideas into the history. And we want to keep the questions, at least at this point, as open as possible. So try to avoid that. But if you really have to, then yes, give them a list that they can they can pick from. Yeah, it can be quite a frustrating conversation, can't it? Trying to keep that question open. I know I've certainly gone around in circles, rephrasing the question as open as possible to to try and get the patient to give me their descriptive word. But like you say, if we can avoid putting words in their mouth, that's that's really important because the choice of words that that they you know use to describe their discomfort or pain is actually really helpful for us. Whereas if you say, oh, is it a burning or a stabbing pain and only give them those two options, then they may only pick one of them. So I, th- I think it's really, really important to try and keep that as open as possible. And sometimes I've even had to phrase the question like, imagine you're writing a book and you want me, the reader, to really understand what you're feeling. What words are you going to use? And highlight to the patient why this is an important question because uh, the, literally by their choice of words, it, it can massively affect what you want to do with them or or the risk profile that you assign to them i have had a student before bless him a first year who uh we were going to a chest pain and did actually say have you got a central crushing chest pain does it radiate to your arms which i thought was was uh, quite leading i don't know what answers they expected to get from that but um yeah obviously try to uh try to keep the questions as as open as possible and let the patient explain their symptoms whilst talking about character some of the things we should be concerned about would be a ripping or tearing pain they can sometimes be indicative of a of an aortic aneurysm or um dissection so i think we need to be careful there likewise a a shooting or electric type pain can be indicative of radiculopathy which is often down the leg so um, can be signs of sciatic or 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 compression of of a nerve root so these are all sort of things that the patient might give us that may start to head us towards one direction or another what about radiation simon that kind of brings us on nicely to to radiating pain so what can we garner from pains that radiate 
So we just mentioned that radiculopathy is a pain that could radiate from a nerve root. So that's something we want to know about radiation of pain down down the lower limbs. It might be just asking the patient whether the pain goes anywhere else. So things like radiating into the groin and the flank could be indicative of something like renal colic, radiating in the abdomen um, or, or from the abdomen even um, could be a more sinister pathology such as a ruptured viscous, ischemic bowel or again aortic pathology. Be aware of pain in the groin, buttocks or legs can still be indicative of aortic pathology and doesn't necessarily uh, equate to uh, sciatica so so just have a have a think about that and i would say in those over 50 with evidence of shock or collapse plus any symptoms that you makes you even consider aorta then it's an aortic aneurysm or dissection until proven otherwise so those patients need to need to be in hospital for imaging yeah that's a really important sort of pearl of wisdom rule of thumb another one certainly when we're thinking about muscular back pain is is whether it's unilateral or bilateral so typically and again there's exceptions to every rule isn't there but typically we get a a unilateral pain with muscular back pain if it's bilateral i'm not saying it it can't be muscular back pain but um there's certainly the risk that it'll be a more or could be a more concerning pathology if if it's a bilateral back discomfort I'd 100% agree with that. And and it's exactly the same with, and we'll come on to red flags later, but it's exactly the same with bilateral radiculopathy or bilateral radiating symptoms into the limbs. Anything that's bilateral should should raise alarm bells for us. It's unlikely, very unlikely, that you get something like a bilateral renal colic. It's not impossible to get two stones at the same time going through both ureters and both kidneys, but I I don't think that that's exceptionally likely so just have a low index of suspicion for anyone who's got bilateral symptoms without an obvious cause so talking about other associated symptoms is the next thing that we need to be asking about there's there's a huge list of these and i think we'll probably expand on them a little bit more when we talk about individual pathologies but just to reel off a few we're talking about if there's any sensory disturbances any motor disturbances that the patients experience any problems walking or or transitioning from sitting to standing other than simply being uh, limited by the pain Uh, a lot of people will be aware of urinary retention or incontinence or even fecal retention or incontinence Um, we'll expand on those a little bit more I think when we talk about quadriquina syndrome because they're really important things that we need to be picking up for for any kind of cord compression problems we need to be asking about history of fever chills flu-like symptoms whether or not they've been generally unwell so this can be found in as you've already said acute polynephritis but also thinking about vertebral lymphoma infections so osteomyelitis or discitis we need to be asking patients about weight loss or night sweats or previous malignancies because patients who've had uh, or have an active malignancy or have had recent malignancies are certainly at risk of metastases that's a red flag that we need to be aware of so there's a, there's a huge number of, of associated symptoms to pick up on as i say we'll expand on a little bit more later in the podcast and put them into relevance with with which pathology they come under but we need to ensure that we're asking about this wide range of things because the the patient isn't necessarily going to know that the fever they've had for the last few nights might be related to their back pain because they see them as two separate things likewise with weight loss a lot of people 
don't think of weight loss as a as a big problem if, if anything most of us think that it's it's quite good because we all like to lose a little bit of weight around the midriff but these are really important associated symptoms that we need to be picking up on and digging down on and, and expanding on it's a really good point when talking about weight loss actually is is it intentional weight loss so if the patient has been yeah, you know yeah. joined slimming world and exercising absolutely that's great and we should be encouraging that it's, it's you know good for, for back pain recovery it's good for general health and it can solve a lot of health problems but yeah but unintentional weight loss as you said is should 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 concern us quite a lot moving on we need to talk about timing so this is similar to onset but whereas onset we were looking at when things started of timing we want to delve down a little bit more so we want to know how long this pain's been going on for does it come and go or is it constant have they had reoccurring episodes has it been going on for minutes hours days weeks months and how did it build up over that time was it severe at the start or did it gradually get worse anything that is really sudden onset should alarm us for something more serious in general we also want to know things like does the pain particularly affect them at certain times of day? Anything where pain is waking the patient at night is is quite concerning um, as a red flag. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. And then we're going to move into any exacerbating or relieving factors. So do you want to talk about that bit, Josh? Yeah, so it's kind of as it says on the tin, is there anything that makes this pain better or makes this pain worse? Now, a lot of these patients, particularly the acute back pains that present to us, are going to be saying, well, if I do anything, the pain's worse. If I move, the pain's worse. If I put any kind of strain through my back, that that's just unbearable and it causes sort of spasmodic pains. And, and that's fine. We can note that down. Certainly some of the more long term back pains that we that we may get involved with or get called to or there may be some relieving factors or other exacerbating factors there so pain that gets worse at night we definitely need to bear that in mind if if they're saying the pain's waking them up in the night it could be angulosing spondylitis or it could be a, a malignancy that's causing that pain if the patient says that, that the pain gets better with movement that's relevant for us to pick it up and and again that could indicate angulosing spondylitis so typically these will be young men present with lumbar back discomfort that say whenever I rest for a long period of time I stiff it up and it gets really really bad but then once I get moving uh, or even when I do some exercise the stiffness goes and, and actually I start to feel a lot better uh, and then when they go to bed it might wake them up in the night again where where they've been sedentary so these are all things that we need to to note down and uh, and work into our impression and finally we're going to look at severity so this is basically about getting a pain score from your patient what i would advocate is is it's not just about the pain score i'd inquire about other things it's affecting the patient uh, doing um, such as activities of daily living be really careful with some things that patients tell you and try and elaborate on them further i have numerous patients that walk from my waiting room in the ed into the cubicle that i'm seeing them in which is a fair distance and then when i say to them tell me about how your back pain's affecting you and they tell me well i can't walk so and it's my impression of what they mean by walking is different clearly than what they do what they often mean by it is the fact that it's it's causing them pain when they're walking and when they're mobilizing and therefore they feel like they can't walk far distances or they can't go to work and can't do their normal job so really try and get down to what the patient means by their symptoms likewise if you have a patient who is telling you their pain is 10 out of 10 while we've all been taught that pain is subjective to the patient if they're sat there on their phone taking selfies and, and checking in on facebook we probably should document that in our notes because it does set a picture that actually the the pain is is not necessarily affecting 
affecting them as we would associate a 10 out of 10 pain does. So it's not about not believing, but it's about documenting the holistic assessment of pain. And I think there's other pain scales other than the one that sort of the one to 10 lick or sorry, zero to 10 lick hurt, isn't there? There's the Matheson functional pain scale, which can be quite useful for those kind of patients that you've described to, you know, really show how this pain is affecting them rather than just giving that numerical value. I think what's probably important to say, because it, it this might come across as a little bit obvious and insulting to some people listening, but it does happen, is that the Wong Baker faces are not appropriate for these groups of patients. So uh, again, hopefully there's not many people that need to be told this, but the Wong Baker scale is not look at the patient's facial expression and then pick which face most closely relates to their facial expression it is a tool used for children who can't understand numerical values but can understand that the sad face is worse than the medium face or the happy face uh, and they can use that to convey their experience of of the pain that they're exhibiting I, I have seen a number of paramedics using the Wong Baker scale as a addition to show that okay well the the patient said it was nine out of ten but they were happy and laughy and so have have said have have ticked the Wong Baker smiling face and that's not what that tool is used for hopefully that's clear to most people but I think that is a myth that is still out there sadly I think that's a really good point actually Josh I um I was quite surprised when I saw a couple of people do this I, I said to him I said you know that's not how the Wong Baker pain, pain scale works, and I I referred them to the original article, which is is available online, and and I was quite surprised actually. But at first, I thought it was a bit comical, but uh, actually, I was quite surprised by how many people do mistaken this. So um, yeah, so just make sure that obviously the pain scale you're using is is accurate. You know, you can really understand where they're coming from in the sense that we've all had those patients that have said it's nine or 10 out of 10 pain. And then like you said, have, have been more consumed with what's on Facebook or, or Snapchat than, than talking to us sometimes. And you, you think, well, how can you really be in the worst pain? I've been to 90 year olds with fractured femurs that have only given it a five. So, you know, how, how can you be in that much pain? And we want to convey that in our paperwork that, that this patient is not conducive to a medical 10 out of 10 pain and there are ways to do that as we've already discussed just using this tool inappropriately and incorrectly is not the way to achieve that the 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 other major point that we should be pointing out with getting a pain score is it needs to be used so if your patient is clearly in pain and they are giving you a decent pain score analgese them it's going to make further assessment much easier and the consultation go a lot smoother and much more better patient cooperation and compliance with whatever management plan you suggest so once you're happy that you've established enough information to give them some analgesia give them some analgesia start making them feel comfortable get stuff in early so that you can then carry on with your examination in a in a better approach so at this point, it's really important we start to establish the patient's ideas, concerns and expectations. And I'd advocate that in any presentation, but in back pain, it's really important because it's going to help us establish agreed management plans and where the patient thinks this consultation's going. Do we want to do that at this stage, Simon, or do we want to do this after we've assessed them? So 
I think that the, the plan creation comes later, but I think we need to establish what the patient thinks and wants early. And it may be that we're not going to go along with that, but what we need to do is listen to why they're worried, what they're concerned about, and what they think they need in terms of care so that we can approach this during the remainder of our history and examination and the creation of our plan and explain and reassure patients why they maybe don't need what they need. So let me give you an example of that. Many patients that have a non-specific lower back pain that isn't complicated and could be safely managed in the community will believe that they need imaging, so an x-ray, CT or MRI scan, and they'll be quite fixated on this idea, whereas actually NICE guidelines make it clear that without any concerning features, we really shouldn't be recommending imaging. So I think we then need to understand that the patient wants that or thinks they need that so that later on we can explain to them why they don't need that and reassure them why they don't need that. Many patients just want pain relief. So it's a case of, well, I I called 111 or, you know, I couldn't speak to anyone. I called 99 because I'm in really bad pain. I just want my pain controlled. And that's something that as paramedics, we can facilitate. So it's really important about establishing why they've called you and and what they they think they need so that we can help them. And and you're going to get a much better plan and a much better outcome by by establishing this early. So past medical history and surgical history, then we need to be asking about previous back pain treatments. So is this the patient's first time that they've had this type of pain in their back or have they had it before have they had previous back pathologies have they had any physiotherapy what analgesia were they given have they ever had any kind of steroid injections or spinal surgeries that'll allow us to garner a bit of an idea about what might be going on and the magnitude of what might be going on we need to consider the patient's osteoporosis risk because this is relevant to whether or not they might have a fracture particularly if there's trauma involved so if they're if they're over 65 that would be a concern it, it affects postmenopausal women more so are they on any osteoporosis treatments or have, have they got any conditions that might put them at greater risk of osteoporosis these are all things that we need to consider when we're risk stratifying these patients has there been any trauma have there been past traumas that have caused long-standing back problems or has there been uh, a recent trauma that increases the risk of muscular pain but it could also increase their risk of a fracture i think it's important to note that we need to be particularly wary of the elderly even in low mechanisms of injury so uh these certain this is certainly a patient group that it, it might be worth having a low threshold for uh for imaging we need to ask about malignancies and again we've already kind of touched on this but patients who have an active cancer or have had recent cancers are at an increased risk for either metastases or, or sec- sort of primary cancers uh, of the of the bones in the spine so new or worsening back pain in the presence of other primary cancers should be a particular red flag that we pick up on and will warrant further assessment and further referral for for imaging to see if there's any either pathological fractures in the back or or, uh, bone metastases and particularly patients with histories or or active breast cancers prostate cancers kidney or lung or thyroid cancers and patients that have had widespread melanomas or lymphomas these are cancers that commonly result in bone metastases but of course all cancers could could metastasize 
Next, we look at, need to look at cardiovascular disease risks, so things like ischemic heart disease, hypertension, all of which may be indicative that you'll be dealing with some um, AAA pathology. Any recent infections or immunosuppression increase the risk of vertebral uh, infections. And finally, looking at the patient's mental health, as we alluded to earlier, things like depression uh, are indicative of worsening recovery due to the less engagement. So we're, we, we might be more concerned about those patients. Moving into drug history, so we want to establish what analgesia the patient's taken so far. In general, with chronic back pain, we want to be avoiding opiates and long-term treatment. However, there still are a lot of patients on long-standing high doses of opiates. Benzodiazepines are falling out of favour, but often still prescribed, can theoretically help with muscle spasms. So uh, it can be useful as a short-term adjunct, but again, it's it's not, not as popular as it once was. Things like gabapentin and pregabalin for chronic pain or, or nerve pain uh, are often used. And corticosteroids, uh, so we need to look at the increased risk of vertebral infection in these users. Because if they use steroids for long, long term, they're, they're more likely to, to suffer with these. Finally, we need to uh, consider what over-the-counter medicines patient um, has taken. So at this point, we need to specifically be wary of things like accidental overdose. A lot of patients get confused between products, especially around paracetamol, that, that might multiple products that contain paracetamol. So for example, I've had patients that have presented, they've been taking regular co-codable 8500s and also a gram of paracetamol four times a day. So they've actually been taking an overdose of paracetamol for three or four days. So these patients then obviously need to be transported to ED, not really for the back pain, unless there's any concerning features, but more for their, their overdose management and to have bloods for paracetamol levels and treatment if needed. Finally, in the drug history, as with any patient, it is essential we document allergies and obviously failing to, to document allergies is, is can be classed as negligence. So really make sure that in every bit of paperwork you document allergies. So if there is a, a, if there is a drug, what the reaction was, if the patient knows or if it's unknown or if there's no allergies they know of, then something like NKDA for no known drugs allergies. So we need to touch on social history, uh, patients who are chronic smokers will have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, which puts them at increased risk of some of those vascular problems we were talking about earlier. Patients that have a high alcohol intake may have problems with pain control or may have poor coping strategies, particularly with chronic pain. They're also at increased risk of pancreatitis and other abdominal pathologies that could be causing referred back pain. Patients that are recreational drug users, particularly intravenous drug users, will be at an increased risk of infections. They may be immunocompromised and so that puts up an increased risk of some of those vertebral infections that we've talked about so osteomyelitis discitis epidural abscesses we need to ask patients what their occupations are does their job involve lifting bending repetitive movements uh, driving or sitting for long periods of time again these could be uh, related to the back pain or these could be problems associated with the back pain that we need to refer them on for like being a paramedic you mean josh yeah exactly like being a paramedic not a paramedic on hems we don't do anything but <laughs> that, that, that'll cause a whole world of hurt for me and and asking about stress and activities of, of daily living how they're how the, they're coping with those and do we need to 
think about some social safeguarding if, if the patient's struggling with, with their ADLs and personal care, et cetera, et cetera. So let's move on to examination because I'm very aware of how uh, long this podcast's going to be. We thought the transient loss of consciousness one was long. I think this one might be a bit longer. Um, so moving on to examination. So as always, if the patient is presenting very unwell or shocked or in any way time critical, then we're going to start with an A to E assessment and manage life-threatening problems first. However, it's highly likely that most of these patient presentations are going to be quite stable and appear quite well to us on the face of it. So that allows us to start doing a systems examination. All of these patients are going to have uh, a comprehensive musculoskeletal assessment and peripheral neurological assessment. Uh, and they're probably the most obvious things that we want to uh, start looking into in these patients. However, it's important that we examine the other areas for those other possible pathologies that we've discussed. And the first of these is a cardiorespiratory assessment. So Simon, do you want to start us off with that? We'll, we'll look at the pertinent sections only. Obviously, you can expand this to a full cardiovascular exam, but um, we mainly want to be looking for um, pulses. So the radial, brachial, femoral, specifically looking for pulse deficits. So if there's any um, sort of change or, or, or absent pulses or delays between pulses, those might be concerning. Look for colour in the limbs, such as mottling, pallor, discoloration, all of which could be indicative of aortic pathology. We want to do a blood pressure. Hypertension uh, is a risk factor for development of aortic disease and dissection. But one thing we really want to be wary of is the common misconception that's often taught to paramedics that bilateral BP differences indicate AAA rupture. And that if bilateral BPs are the same, this excludes AAA. This is a really dangerous myth that I still hear mentioned around the ambulance service. Bilateral BP differences will only present in those with a dissection at a higher point within the thoracic aorta and not the abdominal aorta. And even in those thoracic dissections, it has low clinical predictive value in isolation. So while you may want to consider doing bilateral blood pressures, you shouldn't place too much store upon them to rule in or rule out any pathology. We then want to have a quick listen to the lungs as part of our cardiorespiratory exam and look for any signs of respiratory infection. So fever, cough, shortness of breath as a basal pneumonia could present, as I said earlier, with, with a back. Moving further down into the abdomen, we want to look for any signs of intra-abdominal pathology that may be masquerading as back pain. So AAA, a ruptured viscous or ischemic bowel. And palpation and percussion of the bladder is really important because this may indicate to us if there's any retention of urine, which can be a sign of equina syndrome, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, and, and it might even be sort of relevant, certainly as a result of some of the research we've been doing for this podcast. I'm going to ask patients to go and void certainly their bladder as part of the assessment. So not many of us can pee on command. Uh, so it might be worth asking the patient, you know, I'm going to ask you as, as part of this assessment to go and just just have a wee just to check that, the, you know, it all feels normal, that the stream's normal and that you can do it and that it feels normal. So if they can't do it now, that's something to consider at this stage of the assessment to ensure that it's not forgotten and, and, and that it is done. Which lead us really nicely while you're getting your patient to go off and void into assessment of gait so josh do you want to talk about the the, the gait assessment yeah our musculoskeletal assessment starts with gait assessing 
And if we can do this without the patient being aware that we're specifically looking at the way that they walk, it'll hopefully lead to the most natural um, and true form of their gait. So if you can either get them to uh, go off to the toilet, you can look at their gait uh, as they're walking away. And then when they're walking back into the room, maybe swap rooms that you're assessing them. So um, for later stages, you'll probably need them lying down. So if you can either take them into their bedroom or out to the ambulance um, so that you can use the ambulance trolley bed for the later stages of assessment, you'll be able to get a, a natural walk so that you can look at, at, at how, how the patient's mobilizing. And what we want is them to be walking as is normal for them. So we, we need to find out if they if they walk normally. And obviously, if they don't, if they normally have problems with their gait or, or they struggle mobilizing anyway, that will cause slight issues and, and problems in the in the way that we assess this. But most of these patients are going to be mobilizing normally. And if they, they aren't for whatever reason, we need to establish why. Now, this might just be due to the fact that they're in pain from their back, uh, in which case can we analgize them and reassess their pain later on? We've already talked about getting analgesia in as soon as it's pr appropriate and as early as possible. And this is one of the areas that will massively benefit from that. So if we can uh, analgize them and, and see if they can start walking normally, that would be great. But if it's not just due to pain, we need to ask, is there any weakness or sensory changes in the lower limbs that are affecting this? And we need to be looking for, for more subtle signs such as foot drop or dragging their foot. And a lot of the times their gait will just appear asymmetrical to us, which will prompt us to start looking at it in a little bit more depth. If the patient has mobility problems normally and things that may affect your examination, but they, they tell you this, I think it's really important to thoroughly document that next to the relevant section in your notes where you tested that, put something like in brackets that the patient confirms that this is normal for them and is not acute. And then that gives you really good coverage then for maybe looking at normal levels of neurology or normal levels of weakness that isn't so alarming to you. So next stages of the musculoskeletal exam, we'll do in a look, feel, move format. So we need to be looking at the patient's posture. Is there lordosis or kyphosis there? These are probably not acute, but if their posture differs in any way from normality, we need to be examining that and asking why and explaining that. And as Simon's already said, documenting that. Are there any deformities down their back? This this might be an obvious bony injury, or we might be able to see uh, a really enraged, inflamed, spasmed bit of muscle. Um, we might be able to palpate that as well. So are there any rashes present? So a cause of back pain could be shingles. So are there any rashes that are following uh, a, a single dermatome, or are there any bruising or, or any wounds from, from a potential fall or from external trauma? Next, we need to, to feel or fe feeling down the spine, noting if there's any kind of palpable bony tenderness, if there's areas of muscular tenderness. And, and again, if there's spasmodic muscle there, we might be able to feel that there'll be a really hard area of muscle. Uh, we might even be able to feel it spasming or fasciculating. And then we need to palpate the sacroiliac joints for any tenderness, which could be a sign of sacroiliac joint dysfunction. And we'll expand a little bit more on that on the article and put some links for you to go and look that up which can be a cause of lower back pain. Simon, do you want to talk to us about movement, assessing movement of limbs in musculoskeletal exam and then move on to neurological exam? Yep. So we want to look at the active range of movement of the lumbar spine. So specifically, we're looking for flexion, 
extension and lateral flexion. We want to make sure that the patient can do all those movements and which ones cause pain, um, whether they're restricted in any way. And then we want to move on to doing a straight leg raise or a sciatic stretch test, which if we get a positive result can be indicative of sciatica. And again, uh, this test is something that can be seen in the back pain assessment on, on Geeky Medics, so it's worth checking out. So we're going to ask the patient to lie flat on their back, do a straight leg raise into the air, and then we're going to dorsiflex their foot and if this triggers their symptoms in the limb so the pain in the back and then shooting through the buttocks into the into the lower leg then that is a, a positive result and is indicative of sciatica so it just adds evidence to our diagnosis um, of, of radiculopathy after movement we need to do neurological now a lot of these tests may actually be integrated it's it's probably a integrated musculoskeletal and neurological assessment in one go so you, you can overlap the sections in these but we've just separated them for, for ease of making sure we cover all the in the neurological assessment we want to assess lower limb power to start with so we're going to do hip flexion extension abduction and adduction knee flexion and extension ankle plantar flexion dorsiflexion inversion and eversion and big toe extension so these covers the lower limb myotomes, which we want to test and make sure that the patient has power and they should be graded on the MRC power scale, which is a score out of five. So five out of five would be full power and zero out of five would be no muscle contraction or movement at all. And they vary in between those, but it's worth going and looking at that scale. Any weakness we want to document and document it in relation to which movement was weak and specific ones would alarm us, especially if bilateral, um, that they could be indicative of things like a cord or a quina or a spinal nerve compression, but they can also be present unilateral in a patient with sciatica, but we'll cover that a little bit later. After power testing, we want to look at sensory testing. So we can do this by light touch and if we have the facilities available a pinprick sensation but light touch uh, should be should be fine across the lower limb dermatome so that's l1 to s2 we've included a diagram of these in the article so you can see and there's a good chart that you can google called the asia spinal chart asia asia spinal chart which actually shows the key areas that you sh you can palpate for light touch to check uh, sensation and compare them bilaterally. Next we come on to the two components which as newly qualified paramedics are probably going to be the most challenging to perform usually due to lack of training um, or endorsement by, by trusts. So ideally if we have any concerns about red flag pathology we we should be doing a rectal examination so this checks for the s3 to s5 sensation so the saddle anesthesia and paresthesia and for loss of anal tone if you have any concerns about red flag pathology at all and you're not trained to do this i would highly advise that you refer on to someone that can either same day primary care or if that's not possible then transport to an ed I'm not saying it's necessary in every back pain because a lot of people aren't trained to do it. And I think sort of simple back pains where there's no subjective cause for concern about sensory loss or loss of tone, it would be fine to not do. But ideally, if you are trained, it should be part of the examination. 
as should reflexes if you're trained to a patella and an Achilles or ankle reflex, um, just to check those components. Yeah, and I think reflexes are are easier to put into your scope of practice, aren't they? They're they're something that you know that you can go away and there's lots of training out there. There's lots of patient assessment modules out there to integrate reflexes in. As you've said, there's there's some trusts that don't support internal examinations by paramedics, and that that's down to the individual trust, isn't it? So I think we just need to be aware that a rectal examination would form part of this gold standard assessment of the patient. And as you've said, if if there are red flags or, or, you know, if there are concerns there, then we probably need to be questioning whether or not we're going to refer this patient on anyway, regardless of whether or not we can do the rectal examination or not. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd fully agree with that. Um, I think the concerns in themselves are enough to to refer on um, to a to a senior practitioner or, or doctor to have to investigate that further. I think with regards to, to if you are going to perform it, yes, you need to be training. You also need a chaperone. And I think most people would be protected if their organization specifically has a policy that says you're not allowed to do internal examinations but i know some um, nhs ambulance trusts do um, then you'd be protected by that policy obviously if you if you omitted it as part of your examination because you're not trained or, or not authorized to do it so that would be considered when when it was investigated so uh, if there was any any medical legal consequence so i think yeah it's relatively safe but if you have any doubts yeah you're completely right josh refer on that's a pretty comprehensive examination. I think what we'll do now is we'll just talk about a couple of red flags. Uh, we've already kind of touched on a number of these and put them into context, but we'll just go through a couple of red flags that are just generally good to be aware of. Then we will talk about a couple of pathologies. We're not going to be able to talk about all of them extensively, and we'll expand on a lot of them in the article. So Again, not even a full list, but a slightly more complete list of uh, potential pathologies. Go away and have a look at the article, and there's a huge number of resources to go away and look at that Simon's compiled. But um, we'll talk about some of the ones to be really sort of cognizant of and, and aware of. But let's just go through a couple of red flags, the first of which is bilateral sciatica and or bilateral leg pain. So it is it is possible to have sciatica in both legs it is less common to have it in both legs and i would certainly be concerned about a potential equiroquinal or central neurological impingement in a patient with bilateral sciatica there's probably a likelihood that they're going to have some sense bilateral sensory or motor issues on assessment as well so uh, these patients i'd probably be taking into hospital and i imagine they would have a low threshold for doing a an mri uh, in a patient with those bilateral neurological symptoms yeah definitely we would uh, we would highly likely refer those patients onto orthopedics for mri i would strongly advise against anyone discharging a bilateral sciatica or a bilateral leg pain or any bilateral symptoms in the pre-hospital environment without senior input it's just worth making sure that anything like that is is really thoroughly examined and and if needed imaging is done so we've already kind of said about bilateral certainly bilateral weakness or sensory changes in the legs uh, any saddle anesthesia or saddle paresthesia perianal sensory loss or sensory changes are a huge red flag for cordial equina syndrome in 
conjunction again with incontinence or retention of urine and or feces or any kind of bladder dysfunction so the lack of awareness of needing to void so if the patient says they don't need to go to the bathroom but they've got a really palpable bladder in there if there's difficulty starting urination if there's urgency or leaking of urine the the inability to feel that they're urinating when they are urinating or struggling to stop the flow of urine any kind of bladder or bowel or genitourinary dysfunction we need to have a really high index of suspicion for for a, a central problem particularly cauda equina uh, and that's something that we need to be going into significant depth asking about which can be an awkward conversation to have but it's one that we need to have nonetheless uh, and we need to be documenting all of those as pertinent negatives. I think it's worth mentioning that um, incontinence and retention of urine are really late signs, which is why the NICE guidelines uh, have moved to this unspecified bladder dysfunction. So really anything that's abnormal with regards to bowels or urine at any stage through the process really needs to trigger a warning in your head and, and I would be referring those those patients on because it's once you get incontinence or retention of urine or loss of sexual function actually by that point it's normally too late to intervene so we need to be intervening early. I, I've taken a chap into hospital who literally the only you know the only thing he could describe was that urinating didn't feel normal he, he you know he was able to urinate um, he said he could feel that he was urinating he said he could feel the need to urinate uh, and that he'd not had problems with that but he just said the words I, it just doesn't feel normal and couldn't quite put his finger on and, and that you know that that was enough to just justify going into hospital because this is something that we really don't want to risk missing. I saw a lady last week in the emergency department with unilateral weakness and sensory changes in her left leg um, with back pain. She's had chronic back pain for years and this was just slightly worse than normal. But she had a new leaking of urine and, and, and problem slowing uh, urine. So she was referred to orthopedics and underwent MRI. She didn't have equina syndrome, which was, was good news for her. But I think the fact that she had the MRI and it was considered as a differential means that absolutely from a pre-hospital perspective, these patients need to come in. And, and even in the ED, we will refer these patients on for further investigation because we want to definitively exclude that it's not anything sinister. So I think, yeah, if there's any red flags at all, even even slight subjective reports of them, pass it on to someone else for, for further investigation. Yeah. So moving along then... We've talked about the genitourinary issues. Loss of sexual function is uh, is important to point out in there as well. Progressive neurological symptoms. So, Simon, I, by that I assume we mean things like paresthesia that's just getting significantly worse, even if it's unilateral. Yeah, absolutely. So things that are just progressing slowly and are of an insidious onset. So a lot of these things can can hit us straight in the face so like a ruptured aortic aneurysm people might be collapsed and shocked and, and sometimes it's quite obvious that they're critically unwell and we need to intervene at that point but remember these and these are the, the people with chronic problems that are just slowly deteriorating and no one's quite put their finger on why yet just just be wary of those people so anything that's just gradually getting worse and is just changing over time just be just be a little bit cautious of that it's probably worth a, a little bit of a of a, of investigation even if it's back to the gp for some consideration for, for further assessment 
anyone obviously with a traumatic history we need to exclude fracture before we look at anything else so if you're if you're not happy it's a muscular back pain so anything with a especially with high mechanism trauma they may need imaging people with spinal tenderness again variety of reasons uh, fracture uh, or um, intervertebral infection so may need uh, more imaging any previous cancers as we've already said night sweats weight loss severe pain that is unremitting even when they lie down so most mechanical and simple back pains should ease when the patient is still and be worse when the patient's moving and even though we want to encourage them to move actually sitting still does in generally ease it a bit but anything where it's really bad even when lying down is a massive red flag needs to be looked into more even with lying down anything that disturbs their sleep nighttime pain worrying and any new onset of pain in people over the age of 50 or under the age of 20 it's not that they can't have conditions that aren't concerning and obviously we are going to take each patient on face value as they come but it's just the fact that they are more likely to have serious problems and and we just need to think a little bit more in, in those populations Anyone who's immunocompromised, so IVDU, uh, HIV, on long-term steroid therapy or on um, chemotherapy and cancer treatments that might make them immunocompromised, they, they are... And diabetics can come into yeah, that category absolutely. as well. Definitely diabetics. It's one that I, I quite commonly forget in my practice, actually. All of those patients are at increased risk of infection and complications as a result of, of their conditions. And then again, anyone who presents with fever or flu-like symptoms or rigors, because again, it could be something like a pyelonephritis or a, a spinal infection that we, we, we need to act on. Okay, so let's just discuss a couple of differential diagnoses and what the management's likely to be so shall i do some of the common findings simon and do you want to do what the management's likely to be again yeah yeah, far away so let's start with back pain without radiculopathy so this is going to be those mechanical back pains non-specific or simple back pains often have interchangeable um interchangeable terms and is most likely going to be muscular in origin so these are the most common cause of lower back pain so statistically this is what we are most likely to see it's going to be localized to to the muscles of the lower back and as i said we might be able to feel or see those muscles in spasm they might feel quite hard to touch and we might see some fasciculations or feel some spasming going on they're going to have no red flag symptoms in the history of examination And we would diagnose this by being pretty happy that we've excluded all of the other serious causes. So, Simon, what's our management and ongoing care for these patients going to be? So these are the patients that preoperatively we're most likely to be discharging, the ones we're not worried about. So what we want to do is we mentioned it earlier. So we've established the patient's ideas, concerns and expectations, and hopefully we've managed them. We've reassured the patient. We've maybe have explained to them why they don't need imaging. And we've also managed their needs with things like analgesia. So we're going to advise on using regular analgesia, such as paracetamol four times a day. It's better than taken regularly. Obviously, make sure we emphasize to the patient not to exceed those amounts and avoid multiple products that contain paracetamol. 
We might add in a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory such as ibuprofen if it's appropriate for the patient. And we want to try and avoid opiates where possible unless it's in really short duration. So a referral to an ECP or a GP might be needed if further analgesia is required. But most of the time, regular NSAIDs and paracetamol in combination is really useful. In nearly all cases, the patient does not require transport to ED. We're not going to add much in the emergency department apart from analgese them and then send them back to uh, to their home and most of this level of analgesia can be established just as well via primary and urgent care pathways so really unless there's concerns or you really can't manage the patient's pain then then ed is is not going to be that beneficial to them encourage the patient to mobilize so they should be gently getting up and walking quite regularly there's back pain exercises that as things improve they can start doing which are available from various sites such as the nhs website which we can encourage them to do physiotherapies are always really good options a lot of fitness instructors if um, the patients go to gyms uh, are quite good with managing back pain and recommending exercises and then when it comes to returning to work they should basically go back to work they should be encouraged to go back to work but when they feel it's appropriate and maybe having their job tailored slightly in order to to um to manage their their um abilities at that point the most important part is that we give the patient specific and written worsening advice which includes the likely duration the do's and don'ts of self-care and advice for ongoing back care the most important part is specific worsening advice about the red flag symptoms that we talked about earlier. It is not acceptable to write in your notes any concerns call 999 or if things change call 909 or 999 SOS, which I've seen in lots of paperwork. This from a medical legal perspective is not specific enough. We should be writing specific things about the red flags that we've verbally discussed with the patient and told them. Failing to do that is a fatal medical legal error and and it can be avoided easily by comprehensive documentation. So either find written worsening advice that's from an approved source or verbally tell the patient and then document exactly what you've told them. And I think the you know NHS choices or the NHS website is is actually really quite good and is quite comprehensive and they've got quite good red flags a lot of the time so I have certainly with with patients if there's a specific you know I think there is a a back pain thing on the NHS choices website written in my paperwork I have discussed at length the red flags with the patient and when to call us back and I've shown them because uh, a lot of patients can get it on their smartphone. I've shown them where to find the red flags and when to call us back on and then leave the website that, that you know, the approved appropriate website that you've uh, that you've left with them. What would be really good if anyone is really keen and looking for things in the future like service improvement projects, creating a set of approved trust leaflets that are approved by your organization with worsening advice and how to manage things is 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 a really good thing and i think more organizations should have them we have them in my department and they're really useful so we can cut our worsening advice right down from listing everything down to i gave them that that worsening advice card uh, um, and paperwork because then you can just if it was ever questioned you could just say well this is a trust approved thing that i discussed with the patient and you can provide the entire document there's one for pediatrics isn't there i can't remember which website it is now but you can you can have it texted to the parents mobile phones i think you showed me this one where they where they they text them the pdf of you know the croup 
ongoing care advice or, or whatever it is but but again that's a nationally approved yeah that's the it? healthier together website which is um yeah it's really good you know as you said you can text the advice to parents or the link to the website and it goes to there or you can print it out really good ones and any sources like that where they're nhs approved are, are fantastic to use and, and if you can't find one then as i said maybe consider writing your own and getting your trust to approve it so let's move on to uh, back pain with radiculopathy uh, or sciatica. So this is going to be lower back pain with symptoms such as numbness, weakness or pain radiating to the buttock or down a leg. Particularly, the pain will probably radiate beyond the knee. Uh, and as we've discussed, this is only really something that we're going to be querying if it's down one leg or if it's unilateral because we would consider bilateral lower limb symptoms to be a red flag and we might be able to confirm this with a positive sciatic stretch test as we've discussed earlier in the podcast. So Simon what might we do with these patients that we think might have a bit of sciatica going on? So again, these patients can normally be managed by ambulance clinicians out of hospital. We're going to use similar advice to above with regular analgesia. They may need slightly stronger analgesia, which can be available from, from primary care or, or paramedic practitioners, ECPs, whatever you call them in your trust. The most important point here, I think, is that you have to be confident that you are ruling out the more sinister signs of cord compression or cord equina. So I think that's exactly what you just said, Josh. Anything where it's bilateral or there's red flag symptoms, probably don't want to be managing the community. Send it to send it to someone else uh, in hospital to to examine further. But I think if you're if you're happy and you're you're confident, so if it's say just um, a back pain with shooting pain down the buttock and down the back of the leg down to the foot with no weakness and no significant other neurology, then you can be relatively confident in in making a diagnosis of sciatica and managing that with again pain relief and and exercise and mobilising gently. Uh, NSAIDs are really good for this because um, anything that's causing inflammation sometimes you can get things like the piriformis muscle can become inflamed and compress the sciatic nerve so anything that's going to reduce the inflammation in that is going to relieve the symptoms and again mobilizing and exercising just to try and you know release the nerve from that inflamed area is, is going to help and what about ongoing care advice for these patients so are they going to have any different red flags to look out for or about or tolerances when to seek further emergency care or would they have a different time scale perhaps that we would expect this pain to have been improving by and, and when to go and seek further advice from their GP? So normally sciatic type pain takes longer to go away than simple back pain so we probably should just be putting that in their expectations and that it can vary but it's normally a bit longer. I think they may require stronger analgesia so yes a referral to a GP is probably beneficial. I'd probably encourage that anyway just as a, as, a, as good safety netting and just in case the patient doesn't improve and then as per the last back pain really the discharge advice is exactly the same but obviously we want to really really um, emphasize the fact that at the moment they've only got unilateral symptoms so anything that's bilateral if they develop symptoms on the other side that they must call us back straight away we've talked about this a lot and we've we've you know mentioned it a lot but let's talk about quadriquina syndrome and this can have a varying range from complete quadriquina syndrome to an incomplete quadriquina and as we've already kind of said these these are going to be patients that present with back pain normally will have some of the red flag symptoms that we've discussed so some saddle anesthesia saddle paresthesia 
any kind of perianal sensory changes or that bladder or bowel dysfunction as we've discussed earlier patients with bilateral sciatica or bilateral neurological symptoms when we've done the neurological exam we'd be considering this in or patients with any kind of loss of of sexual function we might be concerned has cordal equina so simon what would we be doing with this group of patients and and what what interventions might they require so the most important intervention is recognition by the paramedic for this patient it needs emergent transport to an emergency department for imaging um, which is likely going to be mri and the most important thing is that we don't miss it so recognition analgesia and rapid transport is the mainstay of treatment as we mentioned previously many authors now say that things like tension and incontinence are late sign symptoms so we really want to be looking at the more subtle signs early so anything to do with the bladder bowel sexual dysfunction anything that's bilateral referring to hospital that is that is the take-home message from from this if you're unsure about the the whether the the back pain has neurology or the patient's reported some subjective stuff get it seen by a senior clinician analgies them take them to hospital there's a really good article in journal of paramedic practice it's quite a few years old now 2013 on paramedics ability to recognize quarter equina and it talks through quarter equina at some depth it's a really good read if anyone wants to does it say we're good bad what does it say about our ability to recognize it i think that's a really good question actually josh there are um and I don't want to scare anyone, but there are specific law firms that are set up to look for the paramedic misdiagnosis of equina syndrome. So while I'm not a fan of using litigation and scare tactics to scare people into practice, I, I don't think that's a good approach to, to, to learning. I don't, I don't want people to take away from this that back pain is so high risk, they have to take everyone to hospital because that's not the case. equina syndrome is a rare condition, but missing it has consequence so make sure you're the best way to to do it is to have a really thorough history really thorough examination document the absence of those red flags really thoroughly and then provide really specific written safety netting and worsening advice and i think medically legally that is really defensible practice so finally there'll there'll be more of these potential causes of of back pain or potential differential diagnoses of back pain in the article but the last one we'll talk about is triple a abdominal aortic aneurysm rupture these may present as a ripping or tearing pain of relatively sudden onset generally it's going to be quite a severe pain the patient may be shocked or may have had a syncope or a collapse preceding it they may have pulse deficits, they may have lower limb neurology or vascular changes, so there might be paling or mottling of, of uh, one or both of the lower limbs. There may be abdominal tenderness, so we might have a pulsating mass, although often this may not be visible in patients with, with a large BMI. And just because there's no pulsating abdominal mass doesn't mean that we've excluded the potential of a, of a AAA. We need to be particularly cautious or aware of this presenting in in older adults so they over sort of 55 particularly if they've got high cardiovascular risk factors if we've already discussed and it may be the first presentation of flank pain that sounds a bit renal colicky and as we've already kind of discussed those patients who are shocked or who've collapsed with new or severe back pain should be considered a triple a until we've proven otherwise so simon if, if we're thinking 
this patient might have a AAA and that's the root of this back pain. What management uh, and ongoing care might we need to provide? The most important thing here, again, is recognition and, and rapid action. So I think we need large bore IV access. According to NICE, we should consider permissive hypertension for these patients during transfer. So I think it's acceptable to just be cautious with your fluids you know and and, and a level of hypertension is acceptable and we don't want to raise their blood pressure too much and make things worse yeah i think titrating like with most things i think probably titrating to gcs is reasonable in that in that absolutely and if you live or work in a a rural area like um, i used to then um, consider early activation of hem support and also consider the location that you're going to so again it's supported in the in the guidelines that you should be bypassing to a vascular center if you have high suspicions of this being a, a aortic pathology there is not much point in rocking up to the nearest ed with current management as general surgeons or, or ed physicians are unlikely to be able to do much about this definitively so they need to be with a vascular surgeon who can who ha- who can operate so have consideration not to delay that and maybe bypass the nearest ED to get them to a vascular center if you have strong suspicion that this is the the diagnosis. And I think, again, with decent documentation of of your clinical rationale for that decision, that that is very defensible practice. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So I, when I was working on the road full time, used to work in an area that essentially to, we, we were about 40 minutes, 50 minutes from the nearest hospital anyway. But we had to, to get to a vascular centre, it was about an hour and 20 minutes away, we had to go past the doors of the nearest ED. And I remember backing a crew up to help with an extrication and travelling in with them once to a patient that we thought had a AAA. And a paramedic that I was with wanted to pit stop at the nearest hospital. And we literally stopped outside nearest hospital. The uh, reg who was in the department came out and basically said, if that's what you're querying, if you think it's a AAA, there's no point even bringing them through our doors because we can't do anything. We just scan them, confirm it, and take them onto hospital. And by the time we've done that, you could be in the the proper centre anyway. So I definitely think, like with a lot of things, these patients need to be taken to hospital fast, but they need to be taken to the right one. We've discussed a few less sinister and the definitely more sinister pathologies there so we've gone from one end of the spectrum completely to the other there are a whole range of conditions in between and what we've discussed and and even what we've put in the article is not exhaustive so make sure you have a really good look around differentials of back pain so things to consider are vertebral fractures and traumas any malignancy to the spine any signs of vertebral infections pyelonephritis, renal colic, any abdominal things like or gynae problems like ectopic pregnancies, all of these things can present with back pain. Even appendicitis with certain types of, of anatomy can present with back pain as a presenting symptom. So have a wide differential and go away and look through different causes of back pain so you're you're comfortable with with making differentials. Okay. So we have done another marathon podcast and I here's me thinking we'd be able to keep this one under 40 minutes. Simon, do you want to summarise what we've covered? Okay, so we've talked about lower back pain. 
We've explained that it's a common presentation to the pre-hospital clinician and that most people, up to 60 to 80%, will have reported it at some point within their lifetime. We've established that you need to have a comprehensive knowledge of anatomy and physiology, not just of the spine and vertebral column, but of the surrounding structures and other systems that may interplay. We've looked at the history and the examination and what factors need to go into there and also how the red flags that we need to elicit fit into those. We've talked about some differentials and there's more in the article, some which we could be happy to discharge at scene and how to safely go about that, but also the ones that really worry us and that must be referred on to hospital urgently or to a specialist centre for further management. As always, go and check out the article online at generalbroadcast.org.uk for um, further information and all the resources and links to other sites for further learning. And if you're not already sick and tired of the sound of our voices, there is some extra podcast material at the bottom of that article. As you may know, we like to run through a couple of case studies at the end of podcasts just to summarise learning and just to put in a couple of conditions that we may not have had time to talk about in, in a clinical context. Uh, well, this podcast has been so long, we didn't feel it was fair to put you through uh, any more of our voices than, than we needed to. But if you're really keen to listen to us talk about a couple of case studies that Simon has encountered in his real practice and put me under pressure trying to manage these patients, then you can find that at the end of the article and if you like the podcast please really help us out by liking and reviewing us on the app store and following and liking us on spotify that really does help us get more listeners and helps us to continue making cpd that is hopefully very useful for you guys but that's all from us this week thanks for listening thank you very much and take care